Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey everyone, it's Pacific, and this is Out of Place. Not much to talk about this week, but I do want to remind you, if you like our show, I highly suggest you check out other Midnight Disease shows like Margaret's Garden, The Hotel, The Theater of Tomorrow, and SCP Archives. And of course, without further ado, this week's episode. When I feel it, I can hardly move. It's not just a metaphorical weight. It's very real. My muscles and bones feel a pressure on them, pinning me down. My brain converts the sense of that burden into the physical sensation of being crushed beneath it. I have to get past it, of course. I doubt Director Beckerman would be very sympathetic if I said I'd stop showing up to work because I thought someone was stopping me from getting out of bed. So I drag myself to the shower and put the weight out of my mind and carry on as if it isn't hovering just above me, ready to crash down again. It's the weight of what I know. I wonder if everyone in the project has their own version of it. I know, to name just a fraction of it, that multiple dimensions exist that people can travel between them, and that many, many such dimensions contain a planet Earth that has suffered some awful catastrophe. I suspect many more things about what the project is doing and how it intends to do it. Time travel, cross-dimensional colonization, timeline engineering on a global scale. Humans weren't evolved to know these sorts of things. My brain can't contain it, and it all overflows onto my shoulders weighing me down. We're relatively insulated from the nitty-gritty of the project's activities in our generic office building, but here and there I can see signs of that weight in the other staff here. 
some of them drink. Nothing too unusual in that, I suppose. The world's full of alcoholics that don't have to deal with the implications of the multiverse. But if I still drank, that would probably be how I coped. Some of the other office drones have taken extended periods of sick leave and come back a little duller in the eyes, no doubt with heavy prescriptions to take the teeth out of their anxieties. I suppose I've been doing pretty well, especially with what I've seen in the mission data the field team brings back. And again, maybe I'm just more aware of how fortunate I am compared to those guys at the sharp end. What do I have to complain about when they actually see it all? First hand. The team needed a while to decompress after the last mission. Sergeant Brand was badly affected, but you won't hear it from him. The after-action medical reports explained in cruelly technical language how he faced severe derealization and distorted senses of self and reality that stopped just short of psychosis. There were physical symptoms, too. It took a while for his senses of hunger and thirst to come back. The staff had to tell him when to eat and drink. The team was rotated out for light duties and observation. Project doesn't have an infinite pool of soldiers, though. They'll go back into the field, sooner rather than later. The target timeline was one of those anomalies that resists all the theories the tech guys might come up with, so the field team has to check it out in person. It wasn't a spectacular one from orbit. The probes around this version of Earth didn't spot any signs of destruction, no asteroid impacts or radioactive craters. The lights were still on too. Power was being generated and used on a scale, if anything, slightly above that of our world. Where it differed it was the silence. There was no human-generated traffic, no telecommunications, no radio or television. There was no traffic on the roads either, no transponders from aircraft, no ships on the seas. What signals the orbital probes could pick up were automated. Things like weather stations and global positioning satellites. No signs of living, active human beings. It was a world with everything to indicate people were there except the actual people. The field team's capsule was sent through the dimensional breach with their target the area west of New York City. Without a specific location to be explored, NYC is the default start location for a search and the tech guys are getting better at homing in on it. This time the capsule was almost directly on target, only 12 meters from the intended breach point at a ground level. The team emerged as intended in the Flower Hill Cemetery in New Jersey. Private Quintero remarked this did not make for an auspicious first glimpse of this world. The first signs were of large-scale abandonment. Gardens were overgrown and in places trash had not been picked up for some time. There was nobody on the streets. Sergeant Brand had the team move through the streets towards the Lincoln Tunnel and Manhattan, again seeing no signs of either people nor of a rapid evacuation of the city. The tunnel had some abandoned traffic, but not much, and the team made it to Manhattan unhindered. The lack of human contacts continued. The team moved through Hell's Kitchen, and on noticing a tenement block with an open front door, Brand ordered the team to search the building for signs of what had happened to the inhabitants. Inside, the building showed more signs of disuse, but not of damage. The team forced open the doors to the ground floor apartments, and inside found a total of eight skeletonized bodies. Four were sitting on sofas in the living rooms, and the others were lying on the beds. There were no signs of violence on any of the bodies, which were still clothed. Warrant Officer Poulter remarked they seemed to have found a comfortable spot and then just died. 
Each corpse was linked by several wires to items of electronics in the apartments. The decomposition of the bodies made it impossible to tell exactly how they were wired up, but Porter speculated it was by a combination of external electrodes and subcutaneous probes. The team could not get the electronics to work or determine their purpose. The initial guesses they were for medical monitoring did not match the lack of other medical supplies in the apartments. The team checked the next four floors and found the same situation in all the apartments. With a total of 23 bodies, all skeletons, all evidently having died while sleeping or relaxing, all wired up. Private Quintero thought they had all died in their sleep. Private Sandwich suggested it had been nerve gas, and for once, Poulter backed him up. The circumstances were not unlike carbon monoxide poisoning, although on a massive scale. A gas attack could have potentially resulted in such a scenario, although not globally. One room was sealed off with duct tape. Inside was a single body on a bed, similarly wired up to a set of electronic devices. This one, however, had not completely decayed and was in a partially mummified rather than skeletonized state. In addition, unlike the other bodies, it was disturbed, lying half off the bed in a contorted position. One of its shirt sleeves was rolled up and carved into the skin of the forearm could be seen the words, Which Way Out? Brandt had the team move on to see if the pattern was repeated in other parts of the city. On their way through towards Midtown, they passed an establishment of 41st and Dyer with a glassed frontage through which could be seen dozens of skeletons. The establishment was named The Threshold. The bodies inside were reclining on rows of cushioned beds or benches, each one wired up to wall-mounted electronics. This place did not have an obvious equivalent in our timeline. So Brandt ordered the team to search it for intelligence about what had happened. They broke one of the windows and entered to find a total of 48 benches, each with a skeleton. That this was a place of business was confirmed by a front desk with a till and a tariff of fees displayed. The fees were for rental of the units, and the team noted the units were rented for periods of months, up to five years. Quintero noted the prices represented a very reasonable rent by Manhattan standards. The team explored the rest of the establishment and found back rooms for storing tanks of liquid food, cleaning and sterilizing chemicals, needles and IV bags and various other medical supplies. Warrant Officer Poulter took the casing off one of the electronic devices. They contained large amounts of computing memory of a design Poulter did not recognize. The inside of the casing had instructions for reacquiring device entanglement. This wording caused Poulter to speculate this referred to quantum computing. If this was the case, the development of quantum computing would be the point of divergence between this timeline and ours. Sergeant Brandt examined one of the bodies and the means by which it was hooked up to the electronics. He picked up one of the probes, a slim metal cylinder that Poulter had guessed was implanted beneath the skin. Upon picking it up, Brandt was seen to collapse to the floor. I felt sick at first, a real gut wrench. I fell, and when I got up, I was somewhere else. The smell was different first. The city had smelled of garbage and mold. This place was fresh and clean. It was so bright I could hardly see for a few minutes. There was grass beneath me. When I got used to it, I was in a forest. It was ancient. The trees were huge and gnarled, 
and covered in moss. I could hear birds. I didn't know where the hell I was, so I looked for high ground. I found a ridge where the trees thinned out. The forest went on for miles around, just carpeting the ground all the way to the horizon. In the other direction, there was a castle. Of all the goddamn things, a castle. Like it should be standing in the middle of Disneyland. It was the only landmark anywhere near, so I headed that way. It gets... It gets fuzzy. I have moments of there, but they're not the same. When I try to focus on them, they change and get... I don't know. Like they don't want to be remembered. There was a queen there, and a council of advisors, and knights. There was a college of wizards, and they were all trying to get their own way. Some wanted peace, some wanted war. I had to choose which one I wanted to help, and they would give me shit to do, like go here, kill that, bring me this, find this person or that. I went to ruins and caves in the forest. I went to a temple of an evil god and killed the high priest. I remember him yelling as he threw black lightning at me. I got hurt, but there wasn't pain, just an awareness I was being injured. Sometimes I died and a lady in a white veil would lead me by the hand back to the doorway of wherever I got killed. I fought things like pig-faced people with green skin, zombies, a dragon once. I knew it wasn't real. I could see and touch it all, taste and smell it, but there was something fake about it. I knew I couldn't stay there. I had a mission and men I was responsible for. So when I was sent to a dungeon or a ruin, I looked deeper, behind the pillars and the catacombs. One day, in a mine overrun by ghosts, I found a door that didn't belong there, hidden behind a false wall. It led me to concrete tunnels, like inside a nuclear bunker. It was the underlying architecture of the place. I just ran through them, looking for a way out. They went on forever. I don't know how long I ran for. Those memories are even dimmer. Then I came to a huge room with a map of that imaginary world on one wall. Like Mission Control at NASA or something from NORAD. A steel door was covered in symbols telling me I shouldn't go through. So, of course, I did. I'd got out. I was lying on the floor of the shop in New York again. The threshold, with all the skeletons lying around me. The team wasn't there. They must have left me behind. I tried to find them, but they bugged out. I went back to the place the capsule had come through, but it was gone too. They're supposed to bring back anyone who's hurt or killed. Leave as little behind as you can, that's what we're told. I didn't know why they had left me, but they must have had a reason. Didn't stop me from being pissed about it, though. 
I knew there was nothing in New York. I've seen that place dead so many times I got a feel for it when it was really abandoned or just hiding people. So I headed east. Gas and motor oil turned bad after a while, so I couldn't drive any of the cars. I found a bicycle instead. Things are a little clear, but the memories still aren't all there. I went a long way. Never saw another living person, just skeletons and bodies where they had died in places too sealed up for the bugs to get in. Went through a few bikes, repaired them when I had to. Came the time my bike fell apart and I couldn't find another one, so I walked. I don't know for how long. I got thin. I got old. It was my feet that gave up in the end. I found good walking shoes where I could, but eventually there was more blister than not. My shoes were full of blood. I sat down on the curb in some small town off the highway. I could see the Rocky Mountains. Then I saw a doorway. It was like a rectangle of light just standing there in the dirt. The sun was coming down, but the light from the doorway didn't cast a shadow. I couldn't walk anymore. So I crawled. I cut my knees on the rocks. I reached the doorway. The pain was gone. I felt whole again. I dragged myself all the way across it and fell through in a white painted room. I could walk. I was fit. There was a needle in the back of my hand. I took it out and got up. I had been lying on a bed and I was wearing a green hospital gown. There was a window in the room. I pulled up the blind and saw I was in one wing of a huge white building with ambulances parked outside. I walked out of the room. I was in a long corridor with rooms leading off from it. Signs on the walls pointed to different wards and departments. Cardiac. Neurology. Oncology. There was a nurse's station with a nurse sitting at it watching some monitors. He saw me and said he was surprised I'd woken up and that I should sit down while he got a doctor. Other nurses came from somewhere asking me questions about whether I was nauseous or if I was in pain anywhere. They took my blood pressure and my temperature. Guy in a suit started talking to me. He said I would start to remember things and that I might become confused about which memories were real. That there would be several different sets of memories and they could bleed into each other because of something called cognitive overload. I think he said something about an experiment I was in. He said my family would be informed, but that I might not remember who they were yet. I could take my time, he said, as long as I needed. Their voices started getting faint. The rooms and the faces of all the doctors and nurses were distorted. I fell, and some of them lowered me to the ground. Everything turned black and white, and it was grainy like an old movie. Lights flashed, and then it was dark. I was lying on the floor of that building in New York. I was in my gear, and I had my weapon. There was dirt and broken glass under me. Sandik was standing over me, saying I was coming round. Poulter was standing by a box of electronics on the wall, pulling out circuit boards and wires. Private Quintero had the medical kit and asked me if I knew where I was. I said, New York, at a place called The Threshold, but I couldn't remember how I got there. I looked at my gun and asked where my crossbow was. Quintero said it was compromised and he was going to scratch the mission and get us back to the capsule. 
I said, okay. The team reached the dimensional breach capsule without incident. Though they still had plenty of mission time left, Private First Class Quintero elected to abort once Sergeant Brandt was rendered incapable of command as per the field team's operating procedure. The capsule breached back to our timeline again with excellent accuracy within 20 metres and two minutes of its expected return point. Sergeant Brandt was assessed as a psychological casualty, exhibiting confusion and memory loss. After a modified debriefing and a course of care, his condition improved and his memory prior to the episode at a threshold was judged to be fully recovered, though the anomalous memories he recalls from the episode continued to be vague and contradictory. The rest of the team asserted that Brandt was unconscious for three to four minutes between picking up the sensor in the threshold and Warrant Officer Poulter destroying the electronic device to which it was connected. Brandt's anomalous memories, on the other hand, suggested an elapsed time of at least several years. I can't say with certainty what happened to Brand or to that version of Earth, but I feel compelled to make some guesses. One of the points at which technology fundamentally changes human experience, one of the proposed technological singularities, is the ability to fully simulate the world. Once this becomes possible, everything changes. Living in a simulated world would be identical to living in the real world. Once the simulation becomes sufficiently complex, it becomes possible to make additional simulations inside it. A nested series of them limited only by computing power. Poulter suspected that world had achieved quantum computing. I'm not going to pretend I understand what superposition and qubits are, but the gist is, this form of computing can perform calculations immensely faster than classical computers. That means enough power to simulate a world. A world where the people of that timeline got lost. Sergeant Brand's experience suggested multiple simulated worlds inside one another. I think his getting lost in them and spending subjective years trying to get out is what happened to the rest of the population. The first world Brand saw resembled a sort of game. I expect that's how it started. People bought home systems or went to places like the Threshold to experience this total immersion game. Then someone built other worlds inside the game, taking advantage of the immense power of the quantum computing behind it. Maybe it was an extension of the game? As a hobby? An experiment? Or maybe the new simulations came about spontaneously as the machines read the memories of the users? However it happened, someone forgot to put signposts that told the users how to get out. I wondered how it could happen that a whole population could get lost in that way. My guess is that everyone who went into the simulation and thought they'd left it were, in fact, still inside a perfect simulation of the world they'd left. Just like Brand found himself back in a deserted New York. They didn't try any harder to leave because they thought they'd already left. Which is all very well until you remember they have a physical body on the outside that needs to eat and drink. Brand escaped by being forced out of it after a couple of minutes. Maybe if he'd stayed in any longer, being forced out like that would have killed him. Maybe people went into the simulation to try to find those who were trapped inside and lead them back to reality, only to become lost themselves. Some of them knew they were lost. Which way out carved on one corpse's arm indicates at least some of them were seeking the exit. 
The fact it was a corpse indicates that one, at least, never found it. I can't be sure as to the exact mechanisms by which so many people become trapped inside undifferentiated simulations and died of thirst or hunger. I can imagine once the population started dying off, many of the bereaved would go into the simulation voluntarily, to be with a real-seeming version of their loved ones in a world that might as well be real. Perhaps some still survived on that world, staying away from anything electronic, treating the simulation like the source of a fatal infection and not producing any signs of their existence our probes could see from orbit. As a potential way for a civilization to die, it's not too difficult to avoid. When I send this report to Director Beckman, I'll conclude with a recommendation not to create any simulated realities. Pretty simple, really. And again, the tech guys must dream of making something like the simulation one day. Cracking quantum computing. Moving the human species onto the next phase of existence. It's the kind of thing that keeps them getting up in the morning. Maybe seeing what can go wrong would at least make them think twice before making a mental finger trap that starts out as a game. The following is an extended portion of Sergeant Brandt's debriefing interview, appended to this report by, and accessible only to, members of the project's board of directors. That's all I can remember for now. Doc, I'm kind of burnt out. That's quite all right, Sergeant. This isn't an endurance test. Take five, take ten, or call it for the day. This process will go at your pace. The rest of the guys, how are they doing? Fine. They were asking after you. They all send their best wishes. Bullshit. Those guys hate me. Sandik said I was a bigger asshole than his dad. In any case, they were debriefed and released to light duties. We'd like to get you back there soon, too. No rush, though. Your well-being is our first priority. Your first priority is getting all the intel out of me. I don't blame you guys. That's why we're all here. But don't pretend this is daycare. The project doesn't look after us out of the goodness of its heart. It's just keeping its tools in good condition. I think you should rest, Sergeant. Eat. Get some fluids. Clear out the cobwebs. Sure. I'll see you in eight hours then, I guess. Look, I... I gotta ask. All this. The room. The table. You. Is... Is this real? We can come back to this later. Sleep well, Sergeant Brandt. Out of Place was written and created by Ben Counter. Sound design and music was done by Dana Creesman. Our editor was Daisy McNamara. And I'm your producer, Pacific S. Obadiah. Andrew 
was Ben Counter. Brandt was Damon Alums. And project director was Roy Stinson. And this is a Midnight Disease production. For more information, visit midnightdisease.net. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.